Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, they've been labeled as game changers in terms of treatment for COVID-19. Pills that fight the virus. We'll discuss the science behind the antiviral drugs, one of which was developed right here in Atlanta. Also, Georgia Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan may not be seeking re-election, but still he has some work to do this legislative session. We'll find out what that means. Those conversations coming up next. But first this, it is week two of the legislative session for Georgia's General Assembly and it's budget hearings week. What does that mean? Well, it means in these joint chamber hearings, agency agency heads will go before state lawmakers, give updates and talk about what their department's needs are. Now, Gary Black is Georgia's commissioner of agriculture. He told lawmakers his department is having severe challenges in retaining personnel due to low salaries in comparison to other states. I get HR reports every Monday. That's one of the first things we do. And uh, we're hovering anywhere from 25 to 40 every week, which if we talked about the revolving door, we'd be up north of a third of our workforce. That's that's a big challenge. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp's estimated budget for this fiscal year is the highest ever at $30.2 billion. In other news, the Georgia High School Association, one of the most powerful organizations when it comes to high school sports, is facing some issues, challenges from, from some state lawmakers over its classification system. WABE politics reporter Raul Bally explains. Republican State Senator Jeff Mullis says the GHSA, which oversees football, cheerleading, and other activities for more than 400 public and private high schools, is not playing fair. Sometimes you produce legislation to get people's attention. Well, the Georgia High School Association, we're trying to get them to understand that their goal should be to make sure school systems, high school systems, are treated fairly. With their arrogancy, they are not. Mullis argues that smaller public schools are being mistreated, especially when it comes to classification. That is the process that decides what schools are grouped together to compete. We've tried to talk to them. We've had meetings, Zoom meetings, and we've tried to get some reason with them, but it hasn't worked. We even told them that it's your job to govern this, not ours, but we will if you don't. So my bill creates a new high school association. GHSA Executive Director Robin Hines did not have a comment on the legislation when we reached out to him, though it does seem the filing of the bill has gotten the attention of GHSA as they're looking to set up a meeting with Senator Mullis. Raul Bally, WABE News. And finally, it wasn't nearly as bad as some years back when the Atlanta region braced for a winter storm. The snow flurries came and went this past Sunday due to the disappointment of some little kids and big kids like me. At this time, Georgia Power has already restored service to more than 150,000 customers. When could we see snow again? Well, according to the National Weather Service in Peachtree City, Friday. The forecast calls for a chance of rain and snow before 1 p.m. Friday night, some rain or freezing rain before 10 p.m., then a chance of snow and freezing rain again between 10 p.m. and 1 a.m., then maybe more snow after 1 a.m. Sounds like another weekend for making my homemade St. Louis-style chili. Email me if you like the recipe. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. 
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues here on 90.1 WABE from Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. We're a little over a month away from officially entering two full years of the COVID-19 pandemic. But we do so with new tools to fight the coronavirus, oral antiviral pills. Now, health officials, federal health officials authorized two separate pills to fight COVID-19 late last year. One from drug maker Pfizer, the other from Merck. That pill has its origins right here in Atlanta. Now, White House of Health Advisor Dr. Anthony Fauci called Pfizer's pill's ability to reduce hospitalization extraordinary. Now, this was in a late December interview with the Black News Channel. So it's something where you have a great product with regard to its efficacy, but we really have to ramp up production so that the people who need it over the next months will be able to have access to it. Well, ramping up that production has happened slowly. Many states have had issues getting their hands on doses. Here to discuss the science behind the pills, because she's way smarter than anybody I know, and what that may mean for the fight against COVID-19, is Dr. Zanithia Wiley, an Emory University researcher who studied coronavirus therapeutics. Dr. Wiley, thank you so much for taking the time, and thank you for enduring with me trying to get your first name right. I apologize. <laughs> it's no problem, Rose. Thank you so much for having me. Um, it's it's Xanthia, but you but I answer to whatever. No, I'm going to call you Dr. Wiley. Uh, <laughs> let, let's before we get all into that, let's walk me through and take our listeners through how this process usually usually works in terms of you know when these drug makers and and how the FDA goes through determining whether or not they're going to authorize them and kind of you know I hate using this terminology. Explain this to me as in my, I'm in kindergarten. <laughs> Absolutely. Happy to happy to do so. So ju- just like Rose just just mentioned is that these medications have been released under what we call emergency use authorization. So the FDA says that this is OK, especially in the setting of a pandemic for these medications to be available to the public. What I always like to make sure is that everyone knows that these medications have gone through clinical trials with human beings and clinical trials usually go through what we call phase one, phase two, phase three, to make sure that they are safe and to make sure that they are, um, 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 they have higher efficacy and that they will work in um, in these diseases. And th- these two drugs specifically are for mild to moderate COVID-19. Let's back up a little bit. Let's talk about then the clinical trials, because I've had so many conversations on this program about when it becomes to participants, making sure that it's diverse pool, a pool of participants. To your knowledge, did that happen with either of these pills? Absolutely. So, yes. And and do I have these specific numbers right offhand? I do not know. But the recruitment, especially in, in the setting of COVID, where we know that COVID has disproportionately affected Black and other underrepresented minority communities, there is always a push to have a representative sample of, um, of participants. But also, even when you're trying to enroll these participants, you have to find people who are actually willing to be in, involved in those trials. But yes, there's always intention to, you know, have enough people that are representative in these in these trials. And someone I got an email, but it was one of our questions as well. So we're talking about these pills, they don't cure it, they don't prevent it, they are a treatment after someone has contracted the virus. That is correct. So I hear a lot of people saying, well, oh, I don't want to get the vaccine, so I'll just get these pills if or when I when I get it. Please don't don't think that way. So these pills are not for prevention. They are specifically for people who are diagnosed with COVID who have early symptoms, we're talking about within five days you have symptoms, and it's for people who are at a higher risk for developing severe COVID. So this is someone who's over 65, heart disease, lung disease, et et cetera. This is the group that um, will qualify for these medications. And Dr. Wiley, we should note that then with this authorization that came down, that did the 
clinical trials include the Omicron variant? And we know about the Delta. Fabulous question. That's that's what I do, Dr. Wiley. Yes, that 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 is an excellent question. So these trials were, you know, done prior to us having such high numbers of Omicron. So to answer your question, no. Um, however, what we know is is that um, both of these medications are do have efficacy against Omicron. Because just think about it, we didn't even know about Omicron period until around Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. and now we're up to ninety eight percent here in the in the United States, if not higher. But we have no reason to think that these medications will not work specifically for Omicron. Let me ask you this, Dr. Wiley. You can, Wiley, you can understand some people saying, you know, all these years we always hear that it takes decades sometimes for a, a new vaccine to be created. And sometimes it, it takes even longer for a new treatment. We can think about HIV AIDS. We can think about how much we've come far, how far we've come in some other conditions. And they say, but now with this coronavirus, science has been able to, in a matter oh, of months, within a year, pretty rapidly. And for some people, they say, well, you know what? All these years has science just kind of been taking their time or what will this coronavirus say and lead to in terms of what we know science can do to address health conditions, something like this. And I know a pandemic, none of us have lived through a pandemic that I know of before. So this was different. No, those are excellent questions. And really early on when a lot of people had hesitations about the vaccine, this is exactly what they were saying. We don't understand how this could have happened so so quickly. How can it happen so quickly when you have so many human beings and so many people who are infected with said said virus and you're in the middle of a pandemic mm-hmm. and there are federal dollars to perform this research and you're in the middle of a pandemic? Yes, things like this can happen really quickly, but what's really, really important is to note that no steps are not are, are, are not skipped. So that phase one, two, and three that all of these tr- clinical trials have to go through, those steps are not skipped. They're just able to, to proceed through more rapidly. The voice you hear is Emory University researcher Dr. Xanthia Wiley. We're discussing the two oral pills to fight COVID-19 approved by federal reg- regulators late last year. Now let's get back to this because how well do they protect compared with getting vaccinated and boosted? Oh, excellent question. So um, first line, what I always tell people is vaccination, vaccination, vaccination. And the key also is ensuring that you're getting boosted, okay, with with your vaccine. So each of these medications, Paxlovid, okay, has um, better efficacy than molnupiravir, okay? Mm-hmm. But with respects to reduction in you advancing to severe disease, um, Paxlovid um, is about 85%, mm-hmm. okay? An 85% reduction in you progressing to severe disease versus molnupiravir is approximately 30% or, and, or so. And it was Merck's pill that got it started here at Emory University, correct? That is correct. Did you work on that, it? That, I did not. Do you know anybody I, I that did? did? Not. <laughs> <laughs> I I I know of colleagues who did, but I don't know um, them personally. And when we say researchers worked on it, um, and I know you weren't part of it, what does that mean for our listeners who may be saying, "Well, what does that mean? Were they just part of conducting the clinical trials? Did they do the chemistry breakdown of it?" Oh, that's a fan. that's an excellent question. So typically, what when you know. Things you start off, it's all and within a lab. Human beings are not involved at all. And in some situations, you know, there are animal studies. Mm-hmm. Then you proceed to the clinical trials, which usually starts off with like phase one, which may be 10 to 20 people mm-hmm. that you're you're testing the study on on healthy persons. And then if they do well, you move on to phase two and then you move on to, to phase three. So there are the actual scientists, some people who do not interact with patients at all. And then when you move over to clinical research, which is, you know, what I primarily do, that's when you start involving people and ensuring the safety of medications before they're um, they're released and um, into the public. And does the if there is some complexity in terms of the chemical production of these pills that that does that correlate into how slow states may be receiving it because of production 
And then also, too, yes. you know, in these labs, they have to be concerned about COVID-19. So they may have limited personnel in the labs as well. So the, the supply chain affects even science. Yeah. So what, what I will say is, is that before the government even has these medications to send out to pharmacies to make them available for, you know, the, the population, they have gone through all of the, the studies. Okay, so these studies have been completed prior to any human being in the population receiving receiving them. So just like right now, these medications are currently available in some pharmacies, some Walgreens, some Walmarts. So they are available. But yes, your your physician has to prescribe them. I was just about to say, so physicians need to prescribe. You can't just go to CVS and exactly. say, I, yeah, I need some hot tamales and a COVID treatment pill. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that because you have to be very early in your in your illness within five within five days. And you have to be one of those persons who are at higher risk of pro- progressing. So I'll be honest with you. I'm vaccinated. I am boosted. If I contracted COVID, I'm not in one of the higher risk groups. And that includes people over 65 with heart disease, kidney disease, et cetera. So you may not even qualify for it. Well, do you know and do you feel comfortable even talking about, well, then what's the determination? What are those metrics used in terms of, de- of determining who should then be prescribed the pills? Because if for a certain age population, you may not be, but let's say you have some type of other respiratory illness. I, I struggle with bronchitis, but it's not chronic. But, you know, I have yeah. acute bouts every now and then. So I, for physicians, I imagine how do they what are their guidelines? Where does it come from? Yeah. So so these guidelines come from um, data and literature and the guidelines that we use are from the Infectious Diseases Society of America. They make recommend their specific recommendations. Um, and also the NIH has treatment guidelines as well. So what I would tell people is start with your physician and your physician will have these exact guidelines to say, yes, you qualify for it or not. Mm-hmm. But I, I do wanna have this caveat as well. These medications are in limited supply. Mm-hmm. So your physician may have to you know, take a little bit of time to find a pharmacy that, that actually has it. Or your 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 physician may even say you're not the person who, you know, who qualifies this based on these guidelines. There's another aspect of this, and this may not be in your wheelhouse, as some people say, but the cost. You know, um, again, we can go back to HIV treatments and AIDS treatments when at first it was so expensive. Um, and in those from low income communities couldn't afford this. What what are you hearing in terms about affordability? And this, again, this is through what you're hearing. Absolutely. So with medications that are usually under emergency use authorization, just like remdesivir very early on, Mm -hmm. even vaccines. So just know our vaccines are free. So under EUA right now, these medications are available for free. Okay, so that means that if your physician says that you qualify and your physician is able to find a pharmacy that has them, you should be able to go and pick that up with no charge. I have a listener who just emailed me wants to know what do we know about these pills as it relates to teenagers and kids? Okay, that that's a wonderful question. So Paxlovid can be used in any person over the age of 12. 12 and older, you can receive um, Paxlovid. For Malmupiravir, it is not recommended in um, children, so you have to be at least 18 years old. It is not recommended in pregnant um, persons and in anyone breastfeeding. And if you are breastfeeding, you should be, um, you would have to stop breastfeeding for nine for nine days. So um, yes, they are available in in children, but only the Paxlovid. And a disclaimer, as always, we encourage all of our listeners to, of course, consult with their primary care physician or a pediatrician for their little ones. Uh, as we begin to wrap, wrap up, Dr. Wiley, when you go back, and, and I was t- having this conversation with my senior producer, Sam Whitehead, when we think about March 2020 and where we are now, you know, mm-hmm. what is your reflection on we had this pandemic that the World Health Organization declared, and now here we are in January of 2022, talking about COVID-19 treatment pills. Absolutely. So Rose, just like everyone who's probably listening right now, it is frustrating. It is tiring. 
we're we're all tired of of this. Um, however, you know, as an infectious diseases doctor, I can't I can't stop. We the if I end with anything else here is if everyone as many of as many people as possible can get vaccinated. And I recognize that if you haven't been vaccinated by now, there's probably not much that I can can tell you to get vaccinated. However, I recommend that you get vaccinated. But there are many people out there who already got their initial series and haven't gotten boosted yet. So if you all hear nothing else from me today, please go out and get get boosted. Because what I would prefer is that no one needs um, molnupiravir or Paxlovid because mm-hmm. you've gotten vaccinated and you know you you did not contract the virus um, at all. Okay. And and then finally, I was reading where there are going to be that there will be a greater effort in terms of getting the vaccine to other nations around the globe that that stri- that have been have really for some and especially on the continent of Africa some nations have less than a 2% vaccination rate because they just don't have access to the vaccine absolutely how important is it that on a global scale in terms of a- a- attacking this virus cuz as everyone keeps telling me we're going to be living with this for a while but if we can attack this from a global standpoint what that really means for not this just nation but every nation Yes. So without countries and continents like Africa having higher vaccine access, we will all continue to be in this in this pandemic. If we you know, totally get things together in the United States globally, the only way out of this pandemic is for vaccine equity and within within all countries, because just think. Even if we're able to get things under control in the United States, what do we love to do? We travel. Mm-hmm. OK, uh, that's one of the things that I can't wait to do again. When you travel to another country and there are high numbers of COVID there, what's going to happen? Then you will you know, you will bring that back. So how important is vaccine equity? It is everything globally. Speaking of travel, looking forward to getting back to that, because the furthest I've traveled yeah. is Decatur. But as far as I've gone since 2020, Dr. Zanthia, absolutely, Dr. Zanthia Wiley, an Emory University researcher who studied coronavirus therapeutics. Thank you so much for taking the time and providing such good information. We want to bring you back. Thank you so much, Dr. Wiley. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Rose. Have a great day. You too. continues in just a moment. I'm Rose Scott. For now, MARTA, the state's largest transit system, will be led by Kali Greenwood. He'll serve as interim general manager and CEO. The MARTA board of directors named Greenwood during a special called meeting this past Saturday after the sudden death of Jeffrey Parker, who was the current CEO. Prior to the vote, MARTA board members spoke of Parker's leadership and dedication to the agency. Here's board member Frida Hardich. We all lost a major leader in transit in Atlanta, and we've all personally lost a dear friend. But I think all of us here agree today that we're here to make sure that we can do what's right to support the staff, as we've talked about, but also to make sure we make Jeff proud. So I think that we can do that for him, and it's our job to do what's right for Marta. According to a statement, Kali Greenwood has decades of transit experience, including serving as former chief service officer with the Toronto Transit Commission. Greenwood joined MARTA in 2019 as the head of the bus, as head of bus operations, and was promoted to deputy general manager of operations last January. Services for Jeffrey Parker have yet to be announced. Parker, of course, was a frequent guest on this program. And on behalf of our Closer Look team and WABE, we extend our deepest condolences to Jeffrey Parker's family and the MARTA Agency. This is Closer Look. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE from Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. 
The push to create a new city of Buckhead ran into a major obstacle last week at the state capitol. One of the bills that would put the issue to voters was assigned to a state Senate committee made entirely of Democrats who generally opposed the city push. Georgia's Republican Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan assigned the bill. It's just one example of the duties he yields as the top lawmaker in the state Senate. Now, what else is on Lieutenant Duncan's legislative priority list? Well, we'll talk about it because I'm joined now by Georgia Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan. Welcome. Thank you. Good afternoon, Rose. I know you're still riding high on the Bulldogs National Championship, so congratulations. Well, thank you. It was a great time for all of us here in Georgia, even those of us, including my wife and I, that went to Georgia Tech. Uh, We were proud to root on a great football team, and uh, certainly a lot of hard work went into uh, that season. Uh, Our oldest son goes to Georgia. Okay. Uh, he's a sophomore. So we, we were bipartisan at our house. <laughs> well, that, that's an important word. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But let's begin here, uh, Lieutenant Governor Duncan. I'm curious, do you think most most folks really know the duties of, of a lieutenant governor? No, probably not. You know, I, I often say the difference between being governor and lieutenant governor out and about on the streets is uh, most folks, when I walk by, I go, I know that guy from somewhere, but they don't know my name. <laughs> but when you're the governor, they know everything about you. Absolutely. Uh, that's, uh, but Certainly, it is an interesting role that I've really enjoyed. Uh, it obviously is the president of the Senate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also you get to be an ambassador for a lot of good ideas uh, out there like economic growth and technology and education, healthcare, all that good stuff. I want to walk listeners through your process for assigning measures to a committee. Those that may not be familiar with, what is your process? So we typically bring uh, each bill is dropped into the hopper, mm-hmm. uh, which is a, a, a bin in the Senate. And uh and then the next, uh, the next legislative day, it uh, brought before our committee on assignments, and we talk about uh, various aspects of the bill and uh, where uh, the, the committees and the folks that, that really have synergies with the topics being discussed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that's a g- general rule of thumb. And look, I, my, my uh, campaign slogan and, and operating manual now is policy over politics. And so we try to make sure that that becomes uh, front and center in every decision that we make. You said policy over politics, but listen, as a Republican, uh, obviously I know at times you probably have been, rightfully so or not, I'm not saying that, but people have said, well, it's a Republican, so no wonder it's getting this committee or it's going to be in this committee. Do you get that accusation a lot? Uh, You know, for the most part, we haven't uh, over the first three sessions that we've been able to be in the role of lieutenant governor. Uh, You know, I think a lot of folks, uh, you know, on both sides of the aisle, uh, agree with a number of the decisions that we make, and sometimes they don't. They don't agree, but uh, I think very rarely have we been accused of playing partisan politics in the role of lieutenant governor uh, as the presiding officer. I, I really try to view my job as lieutenant governor as being a good umpire. Uh, you know, with my baseball background, it's just one of those spots where I try to try to call balls and strikes, even if it's uh, on the team that that uh, I root for most days. Well, now you know how we feel about umpires when it comes to balls and strikes, you know. <laughs> Well, I, I, if, I, if it was if it was outside it, on the corner, you know, if it's just outside, it should be a ball. If it just might have caught the corner, it's a strike. You know that. I have a love hate relationship with umpires. <laughs> I spent five, six seasons trying to trying to feed my family by pitching on a professional mound. So yeah, what was your what was your best pitch? Uh, strike three. Um, <laughs> the, at the beginning of my career it was a fastball. By the end of my career, it was a slider. Okay, now that slider, I like it. Let me ask you this, because as it relates to one of the Buckhead City bills, then for someone listening, they said, then what you just said about your process for assigning measures, that was the same reason behind assigning that measure to that committee? Yeah, I think, you know, urban affairs obviously is urban affairs. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I think that version of the bill um, that uh, came out uh, has a lot of work to be done on it, has a lot of analysis to be done on it. Uh, and so I felt like the, the placement inside of urban affairs, uh, Lester Jackson is our chairman there. Uh, I think he'd do a good job of, of asking some tough questions because Rose, at the end of the day, I've been very, um, uh, very outspoken about the fact that I need to see more than just the mm-hmm. talking points around the city of Buckhead. Uh, there's a lot of conversations that need to be had serious conversations, uh, other than just saying, Hey, pass the city, uh, a Buckhead initiative. And all of a sudden your crime goes away the next morning. Obviously, that's not the case. There's a number of things that have to happen. Mm -hmm. The city of Atlanta has got to work together to try to help that crime problem. Uh, Super encouraged at Andre Dickens and his his quick steps out of the gates to focusing on crime. But you also have other big issues like uh, the the bond packages around the infrastructure, uh, the the Atlanta public schools Mm -hmm. and how those 
would work with a new city? There's a lot of big, big questions. I, I don't pretend them to be easy answers, but uh, certainly the committee process is a place to start finding those out. You mentioned Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens. Have you had opportunity to have conversations with the folks on the other side, maybe Bill White, who represents uh, the city of Buckhead movement? Yes, I've had conversations with both of them in my office and have really enjoyed all the conversations. Uh, you know, those are those that are on, on each side of the issue. And I think it's important to have ongoing conversations. There, there's, there, there's, you know, we're, we're all Georgians uh, and we all want the same things. Uh, we, we want safe communities. Uh, we want high performing schools. We want strong economic growth. I mean, th- those are all bipartisan uh, sweet spots for all of us here in Georgia. And that's quite honestly why I think we're the state we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, even in, 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 in the, hopefully the backside of a pandemic that's that's just negatively influenced so many nooks and crannies of the world, I, I still think Georgia's in a, in a really positive light right now. Well, speaking of all Georgians and, and kids and education, last week, Governor Brian Kemp announced his support for a number of issues involving education. And as you know, in his State of the State speech, he called for stopping what he called the indoctrination of students. So let's take a listen to that. That's why I'm looking forward to working with the members of the General Assembly this legislative session to protect our students from divisive ideologies like critical race theory that pits kids against each other. I also look forward to working with the House and the Senate to pass and sign a parental bill of rights in our education system and other pieces of legislation that I strongly support to ensure fairness in school sports and address obscene materials online and in our school libraries. Now, Lieutenant Governor, there's a lot in there and what Governor Kemp said, but have you had any conversations with him in terms of what some of this legislation would look like? So we're actually going to meet up, uh, I think, early next week. Him and I are scheduled to sit down and, and swap legislative notes. Uh, certainly proud of his leadership over the last three years. I mean, I think back to if, if him and I had a blank piece of paper and we were spent a little bit of time uh, on the front side of this uh, uh, being, you know, our terms, you know, drawing out what we thought the, the, the four years would look like. It would look nothing like this, right? A pandemic, whipsawing economy, civil unrest. And he certainly has been a steady hand through this whole process. Uh, he's been a good friend and uh, a strong leader. Uh, and I'm extremely supportive of, of uh, another term for him. You have a good relationship with him? Yeah, I certainly do. He's uh you know, like I said, he is he is the same. Uh, Brian Kemp is the same guy in, in a one on one meeting as he is standing in front of a microphone. He's going to tell you what he's thinking and he's going to put solid leadership on display. He's going to ask lots of questions. Well, do uh, you, he's he's cer- certainly been a good friend. Well, do you agree then? And, and let's go down this list for a moment. Do you agree with the governor on such measures as relates to critical race theory? We'll start there. And do you understand what critical race theory is and how it's defined? Yeah, I think that's an important part of this process is truly digging in and defining, uh, uh, you know, the, the curriculum uh, that is introduced. And, you know, but I, it's I, not I taught, know. but it's not taught in elementary and high school. I think that's important to understand. Absolutely. It's to understand the nuances of what is what is a title, what is uh, true information, what is uh, taught in the classrooms. You know, Brooke and I, my wife and I have three kids that are all products of the public school system in Forsyth County. And they're doing an amazing job of educating our kids and, and those teachers. And, and we spend a lot of time making sure that we understand the curriculum that's out there. And, and certainly uh, it, is a, it is a strong uh, list of, of, of uh, criteria that are taking our kids to the next level. And certainly I think parents all over the state should pay close attention to, to the curriculum that's out there. But, Rose, I think it is important to understand the details of this and not the, any sort of political wild swings that might come up on a 10-second soundbite. Um, it's 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 truly important to understand the facts and figures because a kid's education is so important, uh, not only for the kid, but for our, our future growth here in the state. And but if you know it's not but, but, politicized. Lieutenant Duncan, if you know that it's not an issue, then you said you have a good relationship with Governor Kemp. And have you told him, look, this isn't even an issue in our school. So why are we creating an issue when it's not an issue? Well, I think it's important to understand whether or not it is or is not in 186 think, school districts. Do you districts. think it's an issue? Do you think there's an issue? Do you believe Rose, that? I think critical- I was, I, I, Go Rose, ahead. you may not like my answer, but I think I've been very clear as to that's part of this process is understanding whether or not it's an issue. Um, I, the, uh, I I get it. You don't you don't like the answer, but that's the answer. I think no, it is an important No, it's part. not about and me. It's what not- 11 million Georgians want us to do is really dig into the details. 
And that's really what I promise everybody when I go to work every day is to dig into the details. Well, Lieutenant Governor, Duncan, it's not about me liking an answer. I'm trying to get a more defined answer from you, which is, do you believe there is an issue with critical race theory being taught in Georgia's public schools, K through 12? Rose, for the third time, I'm going to tell you that that's part of this process is I want to dig into the details. I want to ask the questions. I want to talk to the school systems. I want to talk to the parents. I want to understand the legislators that are that are uh, have concerns on on both sides of this issue. That's really what my job is to be uh, is to make sure that we have a process that that brings facts and figures to the forefront. And I promise you, that's what I'm going to do. Do you have a definition of critical race theory and what it is? Have you talked to people and said who are experts in this area? I think that's a fair question for listeners that want to know your viewpoint on that. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I certainly don't know all of the facts and figures on critical race theory. Uh, and that's part of this educational process for me, too, is to understand it. But uh, I certainly think the, the, the classroom is is a much bigger, broader subject than just one, uh, you know, uh, critical race theory or other issues. I think we need to have a cumulative conversation about the classroom that's ongoing. That's bipartisan, too. I think, Rose, that's an important part of this. Education is, in my opinion, one of those 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 holy grails where we need to keep as many partisan politics out of as, as we possibly can. I mean, in a hyper political period of time that we live in, I mean, gosh, it's been so difficult for me to watch every single nuance is politicized, whether it be the classroom, the pandemic response, an election process, civil unrest, everything is hyper politicized. And I just don't think that those answers, the wisdom filled answers to public policy rest in either elements, far extremes of our political parties. I think it honestly rests in the folks that really want to see our better days in front of us. And so the classroom is another one of those areas where I just it, it, it's hard for me to think that there's going to be common sense solutions that are going to make us better in hyper partisan corners. When we talk about common sense solutions, because I, I want to move then to Governor Kemp talking about this, his support for expanding the access Georgians have to carry handguns. Often we hear about common sense gun laws. I just had this conversation with Representative Lucy McBath. Let me get your thoughts on this. How do you define a common sense gun law and what it should look like? Yeah, obviously complicated question. Uh, I've been around the legislature for nearly 10 years now, uh, five years as a state rep and now coming up on my fourth year as a uh, lieutenant governor. And, uh, you know, you'd be hard pressed to find somebody that's been more supportive of the Second Amendment. Uh, across uh, the House and, and now over on the Senate side than, than me. Um, and, you know, I'm one of those that really respect the Second Amendment. I've got three boys that, I'm, you know, are all going to be raised learning how to shoot and protect themselves and, uh, and uh, you know, be able to, to sport and hunt, all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've seen constitutional carry actually come up multiple times when I was in the House. Uh, and every time it was different. Uh, every time there was a lot of different nuances um, and so that's where I'm, I'm, I'm interested in. Once again, hopefully you recognize a common theme here. I want to want to dive into the details. I haven't seen any sort of proposed legislation yet. I think there was a pre-file uh, mm-hmm. that uh, Senator Anavatarte put forward. I know there's a couple of versions in the House. They're all vastly different. Uh, and so I need to figure out uh, which version is going to gain the most momentum within the caucuses uh, or gain the most uh, headwinds uh, amongst the caucuses and go from there. But you know, at this point, I think that uh, the constitutional carry uh, is quite honestly about the details. I know that there's reciprocal state privileges and some other things that are that are usually a tag along inside of that legislation. The voice you hear is Georgia Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan. We're discussing the 2022 legislative session and what he'd like to get done this year as the top lawmaker in the state Senate. You've said you want to be a moderating force at the state capitol this session. You're not seeking reelection. You've been critical of your own party in terms of truly sticking to your ideology as a, as a party, as Republicans. But when you talk about being this moderating force, what does that mean for how you plan to handle other issues? Which could be, look, we, look, Lieutenant Governor, we can talk about so many that could come up. Uh, anything that deals with reproduction rights, reproductive rights, abortion access, voting rights, even casino gambling. You know, this being a moderating force then, what does that look like for you? Yeah, for me, it's diving into the actual problems that a majority of Georgians want us to try to solve, right? One of those that is a huge priority, in fact, it's our number one priority of this legislative session, is 
is trying to attack a bipartisan problem, which is crime. Crime affects Democrats and Republicans with equal amplitude. And so we've worked hard to come up with a bipartisan idea called the Less Crimes Act, Law Enforcement Strategic Support. And it's going to allow Georgians to uh, corporations and citizens in Georgia to handwrite checks directly to their local law enforcement agencies. Uh, and they're going to be able to hire more officers, pay them more, train them better. And one really, really exciting part to it is to be able to operate a co-responder model so that when a law enforcement officer gets that dreaded call of somebody suffering from some sort of mental, uh, unstable mental behavior issue, uh, they're able to have a co-responder, a health prof- mental health professional follow them on the call. So, look, that's, that's the fun part to the job for me is diving in and not looking for a partisan corner to find cover in, but looking for a bipartisan solution that a majority of Georgians want us to tackle. Um, a lot of the other stuff is 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 oftentimes, um, you know, just background noise and not actual problems that a lot of folks are wanting us to solve. But I can guarantee your crimes affecting every community. Speaking of bipartisan, I remember having conversations with the late late Senator Johnny Isaacson, who, of course, as you know, was considered one of these lawmakers who did such a great job in reaching across the aisle and working with that bipartisan spirit we know of his relationship with the late John Lewis. I'm curious, where are we now in in this current state, whether it's here federal or, 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 or whether it's here local or federal? Lieutenant Duncan, have we gotten away from it? Is there anybody, is there this need, is there this desire, rather, to have a true bipartisan spirit? Because we are in election year now, but it seems as it's, and I'll be honest, the last four years it's been really ramped up in terms of Republicans against Democrats, Trump supporters against Democrats. Now, how do you view this? And you, I mean, one would argue this is probably a big part of why you're not seeking re-election, right? You see that this is just, it's gotten to a point where it's, where someone would say it's just absolutely ridiculous. So I'm not running for re-election because I want to focus on fixing the problem, mm-hmm. not, not running away from the problem, but fixing it. And the lens I look through is as a Republican. And so I think there's a better way for us to go about our business. Um, but I will tell you that there is a spirit of bipartisanship. Uh, but unfortunately, it happens when the cameras and microphones are on. Uh, it isn't politically popular to work with the other side. And, and that's unfortunate. Uh, and that's that's a problem on both sides of the aisle. True. Uh, you know, I've been I've been critical about the uh, the election. Uh, reaction from the former president and a number of other Republicans. I've done the homework. There was no fraud. It was the safest, most legal election in Georgia's history in 2020. But the seeds of doubt were actually sown prior to that when Stacey Abrams sowed doubt about the election integrity in 2018, then Donald Trump did it in 2020. And then unfortunately, President Biden came down here and continued to layer on in 2022. So, you know, look, we've got to, we've got to stop these, 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 these gravitational pulls towards the short-term sugar highs. And we need to start in a bipartisan way, putting leadership on display because it matters. The future of this country matters. When, I, when I'm sitting here looking at uh, a stock market that seems to be unraveling, when I think about business inputs and inflation, when I think about all the problems that an open border brings with human trafficking and drug flow, I mean, there's real problems. And instead, we're sitting here talking about all the things that really Americans aren't counting on us to figure out. That's a problem. And that's a bipartisan problem. No, you're right. It is a bipartisan problem. But we still have folks on within your party who are still talking about and saying that Georgia's election results were fraudulent and that Donald Trump did indeed win the state. And they're still using that as a catalyst and, and trying to get reelected. You know that that and you just said it doesn't help. So what do you tell folks in your party about, look, enough of that and focus on what other core issues that are legitimate that y'all should focus on for your for your base or attracting new people to your base? My guess is there's going to be some people that live 100 years that believe that that election was rigged. And that's unfortunate, but that's a reality. Uh, I don't think that voice or that belief is the future of the Republican Party. And so my encouragement to those around me across the state. And now I have the opportunity to present my book and and other opportunities around the country to share my thoughts. And that's let's focus on looking forward. Let's go back to putting leadership on display um, because talking about the previous election and we're we're, we're missing out on the opportunity to cast a vision forward. And just being brutally honest about the current realities of the of the Biden administration is 
there, there's a wide open door for a new style of leadership. Uh, even a lot of my friends that are that are on the other side of the aisle don't agree or have confidence in the current decision making getting made. And so this is a huge opportunity for us. And my encouragement to Republicans is to move on, is to focus on looking forward and not backwards because it's not helpful. And it's not an honest uh, it's not an honest position. Well, and we know that whatever party is in the White House, the other obviously has issues that that's that's nothing new. I want to move on to sports. You're a sports guy. And you might have just heard in our news brief earlier that the Georgia High School Association, they're in the news now because a number of powerful Republican senators are looking for changes, especially dealing with small public schools competing against small private schools. What are your thoughts on these possible changes needed at the GS? Well, let me ask you, do you think there is an issue in terms of classification and equity within the association? I certainly, uh, since my first day in the legislature uh, 10 years ago, uh, I've always heard a a vigorous conversation that starts every session uh, circling around GHSA. Obviously, it touches every community in our state uh, and high school sports uh, in general is is obviously uh, a very Uh, intense topic. Uh, I haven't seen a lot of the details on what's just shown up. Obviously, we just finished our first week. Mm -hmm. Uh, Always, always worthy of a conversation. But, you know, I've got to imagine managing uh, all of the high schools. And I'm sure there's four or 500 plus high schools around the state, highly competitive, multiple sports. Uh, uh, I'm sure it's got to be like uh, playing 40 chess sometimes. So Mm -hmm. certainly it's, uh, you know, I I think the most important thing, uh, in my opinion, has been when an organization or an association uh, is willing to listen and willing to take feedback. And hopefully that's, uh, that's uh, the spot that we get to. And, and if there's adjustments to be made, then they're made. Uh, if there's clarifications to be made, then those are made too. So that, that, that feels like where we've been, in, been at in the past, and hopefully we can continue in that direction. You and I both know how much fun it is playing high school sports, playing sports in general. You know that. You remember that feeling, right? Being a part of a team. Oh yeah, it was it was a, it was a big part of my life. I played high school football and high school baseball, and ended up uh, manifesting into a baseball scholarship at Georgia Tech. And then mm-hmm. I got to feed my family for six seasons uh, on a baseball salary. So that's the, not that's not bad. Minor leagues. So keeping in mind and, and going back, remembering that feeling of playing high school sports, and I know that during his state of the state address, Governor Kemp brought fairness in school sports. Uh, Many felt that was a likely reference to transgender kids playing on girls sports teams. How do you see this, Lieutenant Governor Duncan? Do you have a position on that or is it going back to you want to wait and see and get all the information? Do you have a stance on that? Yeah, I I look through the lens of, you know, first, obviously, as an athlete, uh, and thinking about how much hard work went into being competitive in every sport that, that I touched, all the, all the hours in the weight room and all the hours on the practice fields. And now I have the opportunity to look through the lens of being a dad of, of three boys. And, uh, you know, it's just uh, it's difficult. I've not actually had to deal personally with any sort of, you know, transgender, uh, you know, issues or, or situations arising on any of my kids' teams at this point. But it's just it's very, very difficult for me to think there's, there's any sort of fairness to that. Um, from a just physical standpoint. And, uh, you know, I just, I, I just feel like it's, it's, not, it's not the right place uh, to compete at and uh, to, to put anybody at some sort of genetic disadvantage. But is there proof that there's a genetic advantage in, in high school sport in sports right now, in, in elementary, middle school, and high school? Is there, is there any proof of that? Because if you're good, you're good. Let's be really clear. You and I know that. Yeah, I think, you know, look, I, I, I'm, like I said, I'm looking at this through the lens of being an athlete. Uh, certainly there's uh, some of the greatest athletes I've ever been able to spend time with and train with have, have been uh, females and just an unbelievable talent in, in their sports. And there's probably certain things that, that I'm strong at and there's certain things that, uh, that uh, females are strong at. And uh, maybe they're the both, both the same. But I just think it's very, very important not to just – um, you know, uh, create a, a competitive disadvantage when uh, it may be very obvious. Uh, and like I said, I don't have any sort of personal dealings with it. So I probably am lacking some of the details, but I just think from the surface and from an athlete's perspective and as a father, uh, it just seems like a difficult scenario um, that uh, could could create unfair advantages. But are you saying that as you will with any other measure, you're going to try to educate yourself more and speak to all the all the different parties that this would affect, including parents and, and, and students, student athletes? 
Yeah, absolutely. We'll add it to the long list of things that I, I become a subject matter expert on uh, throughout the course <laughs> of our legislative sessions. My eyeballs hurt by the end of 40 legislative days uh, reading and learning about all the all the new challenges that we face. What will you miss, Lieutenant Duncan? Yeah, I think for for me, uh, it was a lot like my baseball career when it ended. I missed the relationships. I missed the, the conversations with folks that you just learn to trust. Um, you know, I think about the, the, the relationships that I built during the hate crimes legislation with, the, with some folks on the other side of the aisle that I hope last a lifetime uh, that, that, that transcend politics. Uh, I think about the folks that I've met in other parts of the state that just normally my business track wouldn't have taken me to in rural parts of the state. Uh, it's the relationships that I'll miss the most, but hopefully I'll be able to keep them uh, alive and well and be able to travel the state and continue to, um, to spend time. By the way, according to our research, 1998, you had an ERA of 2.2. Not bad. <laughs> I, I, I tricked I tricked a couple of people. <laughs> really? Was, was it yeah, tough? No, I, I, Go ahead. That, that's, that slider started to get a little better in 1998. Was it tough to uh, out switch hitters? No, it was easy. I just worked fastballs in, change-ups away, and buried them with a slider late in the count. I so, still remember it like it was yesterday. Sounds like you might have a career as a analyst in baseball. You never know. All right, final question. Braves and Bulldogs, are they coming to the Capitol this year? I know we got the COVID, so. but yeah. Yeah, I hope so. I'm so proud of them. Uh, the Braves, obviously, just, you know, if if you could think of a more perfect scenario, a better team to be able to, to celebrate at the end of the year after all the hardships that they went through, they just they just put their head down after the All-Star event and just, just finished the season strong. Uh, and then the University of Georgia watching – you know, President Moorhead uh, just just continue to lead with a steady hand up there. Josh Brooks, the AD, just once again coming in and keeping continuity in that program. And of course, Kirby did a did a great job keeping those kids on task. Um, proud of both sets of teams. And look, uh, it's just another. You know, look, we 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 can talk about sports being just sports, but mm-hmm. it's more than that in Georgia. And it really has given us a lot of energy in this state. And proud of all of them. Well, you know what they say, attitude, reflect leadership. Republican Jeff Duncan is the lieutenant governor of Georgia. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good conversation. Uh, absolutely. Have a great day. All right. now. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Sam Whitehead is our senior producer. Our other producers are Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razel. Our engineer is Kevin Rinka. A reminder, let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other because it's online. Send me an email to rose at wabe.org. And, of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.